Prue and Sally expose the divide in Australian politics. Morrison wants credit for doing 50% less than everyone else on climate. And the good news is people can move between Sydney and Melbourne again. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison in sunny central Victoria and joining me hopefully for one of the last times for a little while at least in Sydney is the great, the wonderful, the published author of QAnon and On, Van Batten. <laughs> How are you, Van? I love you so much. I'm, I got a bit deliriously excited today about the prospect that I might see you sooner rather than later. Um, it's been quite an intense day for that reason. Yes, and we want to thank everybody over the course of the last four and a, however long months it's been. 40 million years. <laughs> for all of the support that people have uh sent our way uh we really really appreciate it we know lots of people in australia have been doing it really tough there are still some 40 odd thousand stranded aussies overseas and hopefully they do actually make it back by this christmas they were promised to be brought home before last christmas that didn't happen now hopefully they will come home as australia has gone past the 70 percent of people 16 years and over uh, vaccinated so that's great and of course new south wales is going past 80 percent soon victoria 70 uh, will be past 80 percent soon too and yeah we're, we're There's some good news on the horizon, at least, uh, if not already here for some on COVID. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, you and I have had this discussion today. We are so used to being disappointed when it comes to opportunities to be reunited uh, that it's sort of a bit difficult to get our hopes up that it will actually happen. But at the same time, like, I feel closer than ever. Like, I I just, I feel it, Ben. I feel like I'm going to see you soon. And that's a bit exciting. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I saw Sal McManus tweet uh, something about when you're doing your last five push-ups and the trainer says, come on, just 10 more, and that feeling that you have of hopelessness and and as though time is dragging on, even though you've already done such a long stint. Uh, that's a bit how we feel today. And I raise Sally because Sally, of course, uh, has had an op-ed published today in a day where there has been such a contrasting set of values, Australia's political values, put on display. Van, tell us about what Prue Goward has said. Look, I'm going to try and tell you what Prue Goward has said, but, like, here's a warning, and I just want everyone to be really grateful that Ben and I picked the podcast option that, that limits <laughs> swearing because if we hadn't, I, I, there, are, there are words. I would teach you words today. I would teach you new <laughs> words and combinations of words. So I just, I, I, I just need to foreground this by saying some stuff. I'm from a working-class family. I grew up in Sydney in suburbs that at the time, you know, didn't have anything fancy going for them. A lot of post-World War II fibro houses and they're the houses that I grew up in if we weren't living in a flat. My dad was out of work a lot. We had some really tough times. We had good times because we loved each other. But, you know, it wasn't always easy. And before I was born, my family had been through 
even harsher times. I mean, my grandparents survived the depression at the wrong end of it, you know, lost jobs. I had an uncle who, you know, went out rabbiting to live off the land, like those kind of experiences. That's where I'm from. And I just want to say I'm really proud to be from that background. I'm really proud. I went to state school. I'm really proud. I was first in family to go to university, not because I was any smarter than anybody else, but because Labor governments had ensured that people like me and families like mine would finally get those opportunities, which had been not denied to my parents and my grandparents, let alone anyone who came before that. And I'm saying that just so everybody can contextualise the poisonous rage that descended upon me reading the classist dribble written by Prue Goward in the AFR today. Now, I'm quite sure that people who listen to this show, I've just got a bit of a feeling that you're not AFR subscribers. And can I just say, good on you. What a wise decision you've made, spending your personal resources in any direction but reading this screaming, hateful, prejudiced pap. Um, Prue Goward used to be a Minister for Social Housing in, oh, in New South yeah. Wales, which is just extraordinary. You might know her um, in her other capacity as the mother of a woman now called Zipper Malka, who at one point was called Kate Fisher. And um, that's her other her other claim is, is her daughter, who's apparently doing a lot better now. Which yeah. is great to hear. Great. great. But Prue Coward has decided to lecture everybody else on how they run their families. Um, I'm trying to, I just, I cannot, the only way this could get published is for it, for the entire editorial process, either to be the most cynical clickbait merchants in the world who are like, yeah, yeah, let's set Prue up to make herself look like an absolute nitwit. Yeah, yeah. Everyone will click on it. It'll be great. Or they are exactly the same kind of hothouse, secluded, overpaid, like classist dimwits that affect just way too many institutions in this country. Well, I think it. I think it. Oh, I'm so angry. I'm, so, I'm not even at the bit where I start talking about the article. I'm just. Well, I'm setting the context. Well, I'm actually delineating the battlefield of class war that is about to explode from my brain. I think. I think. I think we we should talk get, about. That's my phone going. I didn't get that. <laughs> I think. I think we should. I think we should talk about as well that. Um, you know, the AFR has some track record here, and, and we'll get into that because this is also the publication. You know, the publication that's run this piece today is the same publication that declared Gladys Berejiklian one of the four most powerful people in Australia on the day she had to resign due to ICAC scandals, and we'll talk a bit, a little bit about that later on. Uh, and also the the same publication that ran a picture of her as the saviour of Australia. So the AFR has published this op-ed by Prue Goward, former New South Wales Liberal Minister for Social Housing, uh, and and Van, she basically just, it is the most classist drivel you've ever read. It is. It's just off the chart. I can't even talk about her 
actually outrageous. I'm looking at it now and my eyes hurt. My eyes hurt just to it's, look at it. I'm so angry. She 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 refers to people as proles on more than one occasion. Proles, yes. And she, th- by the way, she refers to Orwell. I love these people who quote Orwell and don't understand Orwell. Like, let's talk about George Orwell. Oh, as he mentioned in his terribly prescient book, 1984, you know, which was a condemnation of totalitarianism. By the way, spoiler alert, not just Stalinist totalitarianism, but fascist totalitarianism, uh, totalitarianism as well. It's really interesting um, when these right-wingers decide that they're qu- going to quote Orwell, who, by the way, was a lifelong democratic socialist who took up arms to shoot fascists in Spain, who in Spain was in the perm, which was in which was the socialist militia who actually wrote a manifesto I definitely encourage everyone to read called The Lion and the Unicorn, which is a manifesto for, by the way, British socialism, who said that he was a lifelong socialist. Like there are reaps. If you want if you want to get into an argument on the internet about George Orwell with some like right wing idiot who's never read a pamphlet Please get in touch. I'll send you a bunch of links and you can feel really intellectually smug lecturing them on your superior literary knowledge. So Not to, to mention the road to Wigan Pier, which was which was the process of writing which radicalised Orwell himself, which is one of the most passionate defences of the right working-class people to dignity that's ever been published. The right-wing has never mentioned that one. No, 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 they think Orwell's just about attacking the Soviet Union. And let me tell you something, the people who made the Soviet Union into a nightmarish totalitarian hellhole, let's be frank were bourgeois scumbags just like the ones who tip garbage on the working class in the west so prugauer has today <laughs> referred to an underclass of australians that referred to them as weasels damaged self-interested and lacking in trust and discipline saying that the poor this is a quote the poor are still a force that Australia needs to properly harness, uh, suggesting that schools and teachers itch to send them to TAFE and some kind of homeschooling. Like it's a it's a total dismissal of the lived experience of working class Australians and those working class Australians who are trapped in systemic poverty. It it. It really flies in the face of has a been huge- a cabinet minister in a liberal government, a political party that has con- created the conditions of that of and, that policy. And let's talk the about those party that casualised the workplace. Let's let's talk about some of those conditions, Van, because there was a piece today in the Guardian um, that that talked about how 1.2 million children and one in six adults went hungry. That is, they they went they went without food for a day a week over the last year, and that there are nine hundred and forty thousand children living in families which survive on support that is below the poverty line. That's that's part of Prue Goward's legacy as a Liberal Party minister, and she's now suggesting that somehow or another we need to indenture people in that circumstance. We need to make sure that the they're, they're properly harnessed. Uh, Mike Carlton, I think it was Mike Carlton, said on um, Twitter, put them under the yoke and whip them like a bullock. You know, this is the sort of um, this is the sort of position that Prugauer is suggesting we need to bring about. And it comes at the time when we know, as you say, casualisation is rife. 
there are hundreds of thousands of Australians without work and at the same time, hundreds of thousands of Australians working multiple jobs just to make ends meet. And this brings me back to the point about Sally McManus's piece in the New Daily because Sally McManus, the Secretary of, of the ACTU, Australian Unions, um, had a piece today talking about the fact that there are more Australians working multiple jobs than ever before. 867,000 Australians are working multiple jobs. 55% of them are under 35. More than half, 53% are women. Uh, and they and nearly half of all the workforce have no access to paid leave. Like, this is such a chalk and cheese understanding of the world. And, you know, Sally's position is is clearly backed up by numbers and stats. It pulls from ABS data. Prue In G- shocking, shocking, <laughs> like, comparison to Prugauer's fact-free pap, yes. It's just an amazingly ideological uh, piece of garbage that attacks ordinary Australian people trying to make it through in the world. She literally calls us proles. She calls us proles. Yeah. Like, and, and this this is from all, this is, so what she's not allowed to say is that poorer working class people are animals. She's not allowed to say that because of politically correct woke leftists well, she like calls me. calls weasels. Who, who are thought police uh, to tell everybody how to live their lives, you know, because of, you know, big feminism and other, you know, deep state conspiracy theories that I'm sure she thinks are real. She's not She's not calling us animals. She's calling us proles. And the quote from 1984 that this harks back to, and she keeps dropping this reference to all in, uh, the proles are animals. That's that's it's a famous line from literature, and it's a little bit of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as if everybody from state school is too stupid to have read Orwell. Well, love, here's some news. I've been know a bit more about this than you do. Port Hacking High School Miranda, and I would be ashamed of myself if I ever wrote something for the Guardian that took a a social position on an entire class of Australians and had literally no facts or evidence to back it up. And can we just? I want to get into this because this is one of the things that I've been talking about a lot. Some of you may have seen that I had a piece in the New York Times the other day that was about how our fascist bonehead friends, the anti-lockdown protesters who've been very busy in Australia recently, are a completely unrepresentative movement. They're a tiny percentage of the Australian population, but they're being used to develop propaganda for um, right-wing American mm. news, for people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham and just like the most evil people on the planet. We've talked about that on this show before. But what is particularly fascinating, and I've mentioned this um, elsewhere, is that the anti-lockdown protesters here, the nature of them uh, as a demographic, they, they're, they're not an underclass. They're not a restless working class people. Despite all the fluoros, we're not talking about anything organic from like what is the lumpen proletariat. The lumpen proletariat is like the unemployed, the criminal classes, the welfare class, you know, sort of marginalised groups within society in traditional Marxist theory. There you go, have that one for free. Um <laughs> But what we know about who they are and how they represent themselves, and I can point you to places on the internet where they hang out, where I, you know, follow them Mm. in my secret personas and things, is that they're middle class. They're small business owners. They're really annoyed that they can't open their nail salons. You know, they're frustrated, you know, like vitamin salespeople and things like that. Um, They're also, we know that they're um, people from professional classes. We know that there's an element of that crowd who are healthcare professionals, who do work in various like um, 
service roles in the community and we know that they're those people because they're the ones who are kicking off about vaccine mandates and, oh, I won't be able to work if, if I refuse to get the vaccine. And I'm like, well, good. If you're a nurse who doesn't want to get a vaccine, I don't want you anywhere near my family or anybody I care about or the community, basically, because you're a disease vector love and you've picked the wrong profession and you shouldn't be there. Simul- like Simultaneously, there was a mass walkout of like 15 um, across a state with hundreds of thousands of them, firefighters in mm. Washington State in America today, they put their shoes on the steps of the the state house in um, in Washington State. You know this tiny tiny group of guys who were like, oh well, we're not going to be firefighters because we have to get vaccines. I'm like, if you have no commitment to public safety, firefighting is not the profession for you. Like, we know who they are uh, as a demographic, and we know that they are. Um, middle class, middle mm. management, those kind of people, big, not only because of what we can see on the internet, but because of the arrest records, like how we, uh, the people who have been identified, particularly around January 6th, and it's the same movement, the insurrectionists who attacked the Capitol are the same type of people mm. who are the anti-lockdown mm. protests here, and the dead giveaway is they are carrying Trump flags. I mean, yeah. that's a bit of a clue, everyone. And from their arrest records, we know that they were staying in four-star hotels and they got private jets to get to Washington. These were people, unusual in the American economy, who could afford to take the day off on January 6th well, this and is, go this out is, and have a bit of casual government over This is really the point, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you the reality that Sally McManus talks about in her New Daily piece is, is of nearly a million Australians working multiple jobs just to survive, of half the workforce not having any access to paid leave, of women with multiple jobs earning 10000 a year less than men with multiple jobs. There's a gender element to this as well, of course. And, and what Prue Goward is trying to suggest is that really there's this unwashed mass of lazy, ill-disciplined, almost criminal Australians. She literally says this in the article. <laughs> literally says this. It's, it's it's almost too much to bear. And, and, and can I just say too, because there's another piece that I think it's worth us talking about, because there's, you know, Prue Goward's piece is obviously attracting a lot of attention today and rightly so for all the wrong reasons, right? Um and, but at the same time, there was a piece in The Guardian about a million, over a million Australian children going hungry. There's a piece in The New Daily about Australians having to work multiple jobs just to survive and still barely scraping by. There's a piece in The Daily Telegraph, not a publication that I would normally recommend to people, by the way, but written by Dan Walton. Save your money. Yeah. Who, who is a, who's the National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, which talks about how the, the Liberal governments of New South Wales and the Commonwealth have smashed apprenticeships, smashed TAFE, and now they're talking about uh, trying to import more easily exploitable temporary migrant workers, while 330,000 Australians have essentially given up looking for work because there are no jobs. And that's just in the last three months. And we've talked about that on the show before as well. So, Yep, they want to exploit cultural differences and the fear of deportation in order to have a pool of workers who's, who are unlikely to make wage claims. Out of fear, and that's what so, it is, right? Like that's they were exactly talking about two million migrants in a country where a million Australians are out of work, and yeah. it's like Don, it's Don a little Caritas bit obvious. Said, 
two yeah. million, hasn't he? Don Perrottet has said two Don million. Don Perrottet. Aki, which yes. is the Chamber of Commerce. The fertile Mr Perrottet has said that. Yeah, and let's, so, well, let's can look I just at it. Can I just say, because there's a difference here. Don Perrottet, who's the Premier of New South Wales, has said we should have two million. Aki, which is the Australian, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, which is normally even further to the right, has said 200,000. So we now have a situation where the Premier of New South Wales is taking an even more extreme position than the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry on on importing temporary migrant workers. I think that's that's a that's a very telling point in the Australian political cycle. That Alternatively, he got the talking points direct from Aki and accidentally added a zero. I mean, that might have happened. <laughs> I mean, this is possible. not a man renowned for his political competency. Yeah, Dom, no, no, some no things... attention to detail. Am I yeah, trying to read international borders? I forget. Yeah, yeah, it can only seem to multiply one at a time. So. Yeah, he, yeah, it's just, it's not on. Like, it's really not on. We haven't fixed any structural problems with the economy or employment or underpayment or underwork. Uh, you were telling me the other day that you only have to work three hours a week to be classified as a part time employee in this country. Yeah, in, in many parts of the retail sector, that that's absolutely true. And I, I want to just flag to our listeners Van and I are going to do. Uh, a special episode uh, where we look at some of the issues, particularly some of the gender-related issues in retail and, and hospitality and some of the other sectors, uh, following some of the great work done uh, by the SDA and the union movement more broadly uh, on this issue. You know, like we, we, you're absolutely right. We haven't addressed these these fundamental points, and this is the point Dan Walton makes in this Daily Telegraph piece. He, he talks about apprenticeships. You know, being 377,000 apprenticeships in uh, in uh, Labor's last year in government in 2012, and in 2020 the Morrison government only had 133,000. Like the idea that the idea that simultaneously there's Prugowards un, unwashed mass of lazy Australians who won't work unless we brutalise them in some way. Who, are, who And she says outright that these were the people represented in the anti-lockdown movements. Which she is just, just not that right. Like that, is just, claim. that is just not right and should no, offers no not. evidence to support that, by the way. So there's this, this group at the same – and at the same time uh, – Oh, no, we, she tips a bucket on the CFMEU, who were the ones attacked and given coronavirus yeah. by the lunatics outside who were identifiable, well-known Australian so, fascist identities. Uh, having, so. having offered no real evidence, just more baseless assertions about that. My point here is she, you, we can't have the two, the two things can't both be true. There can't be a great mass of Australians who need to be put to work uh, if only someone would push them into a job and at the same time we have this huge labour shortage that can only be addressed by the importation of labour. And the reason why they're trying to suggest these two things are true is the point of what Dan Walton and Sally McManus have said in their op-eds, and that is that actually the problem is job instability and low wages. If people don't, no, if people no. don't have stable what work, a surprise! Like literally, we have to publish that in a newspaper, and that's no offence to Dan Morton or Sally McManus, who are dead right and clearly are communicating with the powers that be. Like, 
we are living in the results of people like Prugoward being cabinet ministers. Yeah. And the ideological just tomfoolery, like the the absolute fantasy kingdom that they willfully insist the rest of us live in, where, you know, the proles are animals, they're all ill-disciplined savages, what they need is to be harnessed and, and forced to just, you know, get out there and pull themselves up by their bootstraps like all the other trust fund children who clog the corridors of power in this country. Yes, but at the same time they might make wage claims and join unions so we better find, you know, absolutely desperate people from other countries who don't understand the intricacies of Australian labour law. There we go. There's a good one. Well, can I just say at this point, it's a great time to join your union because oh my God. <laughs> like there's never when you when you when we're at this stage of the political debate, I think it's absolutely vital, absolutely vital to be in your union. We now have former cabinet ministers suggesting that we be harnessed. <laughs> we have we have premiers suggesting the mass importation of easily exploitable uh, migrant workers. Two million <laughs> in a country where a million people are out of work. We're just going to go find two million extra people. And there's no suggestion, that, by the way, there's no suggestion on the part of Don Perrottet or Scott. To invest in any infrastructure. We're just going to stash these people under the the floor. Or any of the things that actually... Build a bit of social housing. Prigoward was a housing minister. Yeah, could have built social housing. She was the genius who was like, oh, we'll amalgamate all of the refuge services. So So we'll put like people with addiction problems into places where there are women fleeing domestic violence, no problem. Like, you know, you underclass people are all the same. Your problems aren't, you know, different and require like different forms of engagement. No, no, no. We'll just bang you all together. We're we're a heterogeneous mass. But look, really do... Do join a union, australianunions.org.au slash wow is where you can go to join your union. And if you go to Australia... And just think how unhappy just, it would make Greg Howard if you did that. Yeah, it would make her very angry. And just if you go to australianunions.org.au, you'll also see the work they're doing on on this job insecurity issue uh, because it is, it's, it's fundamentally the problem is that there is not enough job security. People, people are dropping out of the labour market, not not because they don't want to work, but because they're concerned that they can't get the stability they need and at the same time, you know, care for their children, care for their parents. We live in a very compressed economy where if you're of working age and working capacity, you often have caring responsibilities at both ends of the spectrum. This is not something people can do when their work is insecure, unstable. They have no control over when they start, no say over when they finish. They're put on rosters that are dictated by a computer. And and this idea that, you know, the recent changes to casual employment will have solved some of this is a total fallacy and fantasy as well because we've all seen anyone who's a casual or knows a casual who put in a claim to become permanent recently is far more likely to have been knocked back than to have been accepted. And I'll give you a, a good example. Well, I like using unis, Van, as you know, because it's that old concept of it's the ivory tower. Well, now it's one of the most casualised and insecure workplaces in the country. Sydney Uni casuals, 4,137 casuals put in a claim to be made permanent. That is, they put in a claim to say they had been working in the same roster, doing the same work for more than six months, more than 12 months, and only 69 of them 
were given ongoing employment. That's the reality. Like when Prue Goward talks about the 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 kind of the the, the sort of just bizarre idea that people don't want to work. The reality is that people are breaking themselves trying to work and people like Prue Goward and Scott Morrison and Don Perrottet are not not fixing the system that is seeing them be exploited. No, because they think we're animals. They think the proles are animals. They think people like me are ill-disciplined scumbags who should be channeled into time. I mean, I just... I'm, I, I just wonder what had happened, what my life would be like if I was a teenager now uh, as opposed to being a teenager in the 1990s and what would have happened to me. I mean, I got kicked out of my state school in year 11. I had to find another one to take me in. I was ill-disciplined and, you know, I came from a family, like I said, a lot of love but no middle-class opportunities. Nobody in my family had ever put up their hand and gone, oh, I think I'm going to be a journalist or yeah. avant-garde feminist theatre maker. I mean, that wasn't a thing. Nobody knew how to help me. Like I was I was the first one to stay at school until year 11. Um, and I just think what you think that I should have just, you know, been harnessed or yoked to whatever your garbage neoliberal project is, like I should just like accept sub-minimum wages and and be exploited in the economy for my own character benefit or I should just be unemployed because that's handy for you because that puts downward pressure on wages to, to have a class of people who you punish with like appalling welfare that they can't live on and go, oh, if you put any wage claims, you may lose your job and you might end up like that. I mean, that's why that exists. Mm. That's why surplus labour exists in the economy so employers don't have to pay more money to the people who do work for them. Like that's structured into our economy they call it the not what is non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, yeah. and the Treasury actually manipulate those statistics to make sure there's, you know, the, that that there isn't too much employment or people will start valuing their own labour and asking for more money, and then inflation would go up, and then where would rich people with huge capital deposits in banks be? I mean, the rest of us would be better off, but it's just, I mean, it's incredible, and it, I, it's something that I actually perceive with genuine terror, like. Who do you think you are, lady, to look down on me, my neighbourhood, my community, my family, the people I grew up with and the people who I like the most? Where are your values, love? Where is your character or sense of responsibility to other people? Because I can't see it. All I can see is some kind of lunatic ideologue like expressing bigoted hatred towards an entire class of people from a platform that they sailed into because of their, what, social connections? Good on you. It, it really is It really is a stunning, uh, a stunning exposure of how that group of people that Prugauer is part of really view the bulk of Australians uh, and it's, you know, if you ever, if you ever had any doubt, if you ever thought you heard Scott Morrison say that he's for working people, and thought, oh, maybe he is, just just look at some of the quotes from that Prue Goward piece, because that's that's the New South Wales Liberal Party view of working people in this country, that we are animals, that we are weasels, that we're damaged and ill-disciplined. And lack trust. These are these are direct quotes. I'm not making those up. 
Yeah, they're the direct quotes. And she defends this by saying, as a shopkeeper's daughter, you know, I engage with these people all the time. It's like, well, in a traditional Marxist class analysis, love, that makes you petit bourgeois. And yeah. your closeness to us uh, in the generational context that you have represented is is actually quite distant. Like you come from a different rung on the ladder and, frankly, we don't need your approval. You know, the only engagement I wish to have with your particular cultural milieu, darling, is maybe buying a packet of chips to enjoy <laughs> on my own. Indeed. Well, I'm talking- so angry. Can you hear it? Can you hear the full bargain is coming out in my accent? I've just been in class umbridge all day. Yes, I think I feel like she's insulting my mum and I don't like it. I think I think that's the way a lot of us feel actually. I think I think we've I think today has really hit a, a nerve in terms of you know, at the same time as we're seeing real stats about real people who are going hungry, who are working multiple jobs, who are facing complete instability of employment, low wages, cutting wage decline, and possibly the threat of mass importation of more easily exploitable migrant workers, temporary migrant workers. Um, you've got this attack on who we see ourselves as in terms of being working class, our parents, our upbringing, like, and it's really bubbling to the surface. At the same time, and I, and I want to I want to talk about the the fact that at the same time there's this very tangible but also existential threat about the future because of Morrison's refusal to act on climate change. You know, oh, this is just- this is the debate of the of the parliament at the moment. It's a big focus in the news. So you've got this real undermining of who we are as a people, as working people, and the conditions that we exist under, and a kind of derogatory, and not a kind of, an absolutely derogatory uh, approach to us at the same time. Oh. Actually, yeah. called us weasels. And at the same time, Morrison's out there wanting to go to Glasgow. He now wants to go to Glasgow, and you know, Van, he's now saying he wants to celebrate that we're on track to reduce emissions by between thirty and thirty-five percent, and that's thanks mostly to the work Labor state governments are doing. Um, but that's about half as much as the UK. And it's between 10 and 25 percentage points worse than the US, the EU and Canada. And he literally has put on the table that he wanted to go to Glasgow and say, oh, look, see, we did better than the 28% reduction. We've got to nearly, you know, between 30 and 35. The US and UK have pointed out to him how poor that effort is, even if he even if it's better than what Tony Abbott set all the way back in 2013 and that really he can't go come to Glasgow and skite over doing half as much as the UK, that that, that, that won't be acceptable. But at the same time, you know, the Nats uh, are refusing to agree to net zero. They're refusing to agree to emissions reduction targets. Like, it, oh, they it, haven't had any time to think about it. They had a four-hour meeting. I'm like, you've been in government for eight years. In yeah. fact, when you contested for government eight years ago, your entire party's platform was based around climate change. You know, we're going to get rid of the carbon tax and you can trust us to do, do the right thing and we're going to work it out and we've got all these plans and blah, blah. Except now it's crunch time. The planet's on fire. Australia has literally been on fire. We know the weather is completely out of control. And the farmers who these 
National Party people insist that they represent in some kind of weird sort of, you know, like notionally spiritual sense, if nothing actually practical, maybe a few diesel fuel rebates, they will, they're like, this is a problem for Australian agriculture. The National Farmers Federation have said this. Farmers are saying this. Farmers where we live are saying this and voting Labor because they need actual plans for how they're going to mitigate what the hell is going on. There needs to be a suite of policy, a suite of policy responses. And the National Party had a caucus meeting about it the other day in the parliament and, you know, the meeting went for four hours but didn't resolve anything. I mean, they need more time. How much more time? How much of the planet is literally going to be incinerated before you guys come up with something? I was saying this the other day, one of my more pertinent tweets was if you've ever worried that a small group of people can't change the world, be aware that those clowns in the National Party might just be about to wreck a global consensus on climate action. It really is phenomenal because they did have a joint sitting of both the National Party and the Liberal Party. It is a parliamentary sitting week this week. That's a normal thing for them to do uh, because they are actually both in government. They're both the party of government, right? Like this is what the Nationals are trying to pretend that somehow or another they're not in Cabinet, that their ministers are not the ones making decisions. But they are and they're there and they're in a joint party room meeting and by all accounts... The joint sitting didn't discuss it. Apparently, Rennick, who's a Looney Tune uh, senator from Queensland. Oh, he's who, the who, full can of bonkers, who, Rennick. Well, Check to- out that social media profile. Totally, My lord. Totally was not expected to get elected, right? Like he he is the he is the he is the wild card in the bunch, um, given an unwinnable spot and won. Not because of him, but because Labor's vote collapsed in Queensland. Let's be clear about that. Uh, and then Canavan, who everybody knows as the cosplay cosplay Canavan from from you know um, which which consulting firm was it again? I forget. But one of the KPMG is a yeah. KPMG boy. Both of them sort of got up and and mentioned that their position their position lacked substance, and compared it to one of their own election campaign slogans, like. These people are so outrageously... They're shameless. Shameless. Thank you. Shameless. The they, have, they will say and do anything to hold on to power. I mean, you only have to look at just, oh, the appalling Dave Sharma. I mean, I've got a particular loathing for Dave Sharma because I used to live in the seat of Wentworth when Turnbull was the local member. And even though, like, Turnbull is a disgusting Tory, at least he had a personality. And, you know, no one has ever accused Dave Sharma of having a personality that's just not even in the top five. And you see him and the likes of Katie Allen, who's she's the member for Higgins, is she Higgins, Higgins now? Yeah, Higgins, yeah. But in the leafy Liberal seats, in the doctor's yeah. wives' seats, who are speaking to the concerns of their electorate, who are, by the way, like business people who want things like market certainty and a bit of planning about what a regulatory environment is going to look like, given the fact that in a globalised economy there are there are wealthy traditional Liberal voters who are looking at their businesses and their opportunities going, well, everybody else is legislating around climate action. What are we doing? Well, we need at, to know. And people first. like Dave Sharma are going, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're totally, com- totally committed, man, totally committed to finding solutions. Like we're totally going to find them. And then say that out of one side of their mouths and the other side of their mouths is, oh, well, uh, well, you know, we've got to, we are in a coalition and we've got to take the concerns of the National Party on board. Can everybody just be really honest about what's going on? 
Like it's all about money. It's about vast amounts of money from fossil fuel interests and the kind of resources that they provide. Liberals don't win elections in this country because they're awesome people or articulate a fantastic vision. They spend a fortune on on election campaigns and that fortune comes from their friends and they don't want to threaten their funding base, you know, the kind of people who provide them with say, those wonderful freebies they don't even have to ask for, like dark internet campaigning, which I'm sure we all remember from the last election, which I'm sure nobody from the Liberal Party knew anything official about, but which miraculously happened. Like, it is. this it, is what it's about. Clive Palmer, how much did Clive Palmer, the coal baron, spend on $80 the million. $80 million, bit and of an $80 million out, freebie? It's come, out this week, it's come out this week, Van, that... Uh, Palmer has already spent well over a million dollars just uh, in the last few months on YouTube ads promoting uh, promoting his political party and promoting um, Craig Kelly. Like the, the, that is going to continue, right? Like that is going to continue because it's 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 about yes, it's about political money and political positioning for campaigning, but it's also. It's also about horse trading, right? Like the Nats are clearly just in this now to get what they can, you know, in terms of grants, in terms of access and control over our money, the Commonwealth money, the treasury that we all pay taxes into, that the, the, these these proles pay their taxes for, um, the, the, the Nats can then pork barrel. So, again, this has all been coming out in the last few days. So $600 million, a quarter of the regional development grants were made to major cities. This is money that the Nats and the Liberals agreed the Nats would be allowed to control. $30 billion worth of grants under this government, under the Liberal National Government, have been doled out without a competitive process, without any kind of, you know, is this good for, is this is this application better for Australia than this application? No, no, we'll just let the minister dole out the cash. Of course, everyone remembers Bridget McKenzie and sports rorts. Well, building better, building better regions is a fund where 90% of the money went to coalition and marginal must-win seats, most of those national party seats. And now, of course, Mackenzie's in charge of the bushfire recovery grants, which we've talked about on this show before as well. Like this is the National Party are leveraging this out to try and get a payday. You know, they are what's in it for the bush. When they say what's in it for the bush, they're what's the barrel of cash that's going to be stashed next to a National Party minister in a coalition government where they can dole it out to friends, allies, political patrons across these electorates. That's what it's really all about. So much so that Senator McKenzie today threatened Morrison, said it will be ugly if Morrison adopts a net zero position without the National Party permission. It'll be ugly. It will be ugly. You know, like, okay, National Party, if you're so convinced, if you're so, if your convictions are such that you simply cannot support real action on climate change. And Morrison has now got up in Parliament and said there are more jobs in it and there's better for the economy. Basically, it seems like he found a copy of the 2016 ALP manifesto uh, platform and is just reading from it now, which is it's great that he finally found it, but here we are. If the nationals are so convinced that that's wrong, quit the government. 
quit the government, make Morrison call an election, take your 4.5% of the vote and stand on your own two feet and try and convince the rest of Australia to let the country burn. But they won't do that because then they won't have access to the barrels of pork. This is all about barrels of pork. It is. It is all about barrels of pork. And it's just, it's so disgusting. It is just, it's about, it's just entirely about a favouritism economy. That's, there's nothing about business or entrepreneurialism or the market. You know, they go on about, oh, yes, we're champions of the market. The market is like advantageous government decisions targeted towards friends and donors and that's what it's about. So let's just have a look at this system. Our friend Clive Palmer spends $80 million on a highly influential, precisely targeted campaign borrowing techniques that were used by the likes of Steve Bannon in the United States. And, I, I mean, I can tell you that for a fact because of the death tax material that was circulating, didn't even change the figures that Bannon used in the US, didn't even change them when we were all being way, told. He, by the way, has now been charged with contempt of Congress I, uh, overnight. Literally, <laughs> let me tell you, it will be the second happiest day of my life to the day that I marry Ben Davison to see Steve Bannon go to jail. I will wear a red dress and dance all goddamn day, we'll, let me we'll, tell you. We'll talk about Bannon in more detail in another episode. But, a, yeah. but um, so this is how it works. So Clive spends $80 million targeting really niche um, campaign tech, like tactics towards getting not only preferential votes but um, just targeting messaging. And in the last election it was all anti-Labor messaging. That's really what yeah. it was. I'm such a maverick and I'm, you know, make Australia great again and whatever. It was never actually about winning seats. It was spoiling Labor's chances and creating a hostile messaging environment that because it was so nimble, because it used the internet in ways that hadn't been used in Australian campaigning before, Labor was totally blindsided by a senior Labor campaign official told me that it was like being in a war and not knowing that a second front had opened up and then all, all of your villages being bombed overnight. Like that's what it was like. And having seen some of the advertising that was targeted towards seats in Queensland, you know, which was made very pertinent and helpful by our friends, the Greens, and their convoy full of hippies and Teslas driving through towns, lecturing people about having jobs, how wanting jobs was wrong. Thanks, guys. That was really yeah. handy for yeah. the right. Um, so that's so Clive makes that investment. Because Clive expects favourable conditions in return. I mean, everybody's on the same page. Labor are kept out of government by relentless right-wing propaganda intended to spoil anything like honest campaigning. And the Liberal Party, of course, maintain a status quo where they can stay in power um, because they get that kind of help from the coal lobby so they don't tread on the coal lobby's toes. And then they want that power and retain it so they can dispense grace and favour to their other friends and compadres. And you can see that like the friends of the Taylor family who do very well out of Liberal governments actually. And, you know, I mean, mm. let's look at some of those big public Tories who aren't the ones who are in the part who aren't the ones who are in government, but do really well. Like the job provide the job agency providers, you know, the private colleges. You know, like if people with $3 million worth of land that suddenly becomes worth $30 million if the government's paying for it, the subcontractors, the contract industry, like, you know, oh, all of the, these people the sucking on the public teat, the on the most disgusting, firms, yeah, yeah you know? global consulting firms, the most disgusting corporate welfare you could possibly imagine. But that's how it works, you know, and this is why, like, I just, 
Like, and they call us weasels. And they call, and they call us, us weasels. They call us weasels. You know, like people are always, especially people who are not members of the Labor Party, are always giving the Labor Party advice on how yeah. they should run their campaigns. It's something you and I draw great mirth from is watching people who don't like the Labor Party, who don't want to vote for the Labor Party, who, you know, vote for the Greens or, you know, whichever hippie independent they're attached to at that particular time, lead to the Labor Party and what they really should be doing. And I'm just like the problem the Labor Party has is actually, campaigning on what they believe as opposed to just pulling everybody's board, which is the, the Liberal Party tactic and relying on lying propaganda from Clive Palmer in order to discredit their opponent, like yeah. $80 million worth of that. It's yeah, I, have just to, like- I have to say I've been in many, many conversations over the years where, you know, the nuance of a particular policy position and, you know, two percent versus two and a half percent is is tr- somebody's trying to make a meme out of that, and at the same time, the liberals just say whatever nonsense is going to win votes. We're for workers, despite the fact that we have the highest level of casualized uh, casualized employment in the OECD. We're for wage growth, despite the fact that we're cutting wages of the people that we employ, as well as putting downward pressure on wages across oh, the economy. We're for we're climate for- action, but we're funding new coal mines and handing out money. Yeah, and, and our COVID recovery is somehow the gas industry. We're for families, except we're going to make you work so hard you never actually see yours and we're going to punish people on welfare and, you know, like create this ridiculous you know, it's a system of a, of a two-speed econ- economy, one for our friends and one for everybody else, you know, yeah. and it's just, I mean, what breaks my heart as well, you know, is when small business people vote Liberal thinking, oh, well, you know, Liberals are the party of small business. And, like, they're destroying your markets, you idiot. Like, these are people, the, the money that they take out of working people is money that will not be spent on your small business, do you understand? Like if we reduce the amount of money that people have to spend and redirect it to the sections of the economy, Twee Forest does not need any more money. Clive Palmer does not need any more money. They are not going to get, you know, they will take it. They will take these massive, like, you know, boons, these treasures that a Liberal government will hand over to them. They'll absolutely take it and then they'll just make it into a big pot of capital and, I don't know, go bathing with it. They're not going to order more coffees. They're not going to buy more food. They're not going to ask for more nail art. They're not the people who buy those services. The people who buy those services, small business people, please listen to me are working people. It's working people who want to get their hair done, want to have a good night on a Friday night, might want to go out for a nice restaurant meal with their family, and if they don't have the money to do that, your business suffers. It's interesting, isn't it, because, you know, we... We know that government investment, targeted government investment, we know we know that government wages and job security that, that can come from a strong public sector and can then impact job security and wages in other parts of the economy. We know that that drives good economic outcomes. What we've seen, though, Van, through all of this rotting and pork barrelling is so much waste. And today, I have to say... You know, I, I almost lost track of the names of the different programs because there's the regional development grants, there's the Building Better Regions Fund, there's the Bushfire Recovery something or other. And now the pork course, barrel, the barrel the, of pork. Yeah, and now and now of course we've got the ICAC hearing. The barrel of pork. Where where it's the Gladys Berejiklian ICAC hearings, where five and a half million dollars went to a shooting range in Wagga Wagga. 
despite advice from the Liberals' political appointees that said <laughs> it said the project went against, and this is a quote, against all our principles of sound economic management. But they, they gave them the money anyway. So at the same time as they pull back investments in secure employment, pull back investments in wages, pull back the money that working people need to spend in the shops to support small business, they fritter away millions on pet projects and projects for their boyfriends and projects for their patrons and projects for their brothers and projects for their distant cousins. Like, it's got to come to an end, doesn't it? Yep, and we need an ICAC. That's the other thing we need. We need an ICAC. By the way, everybody, just in case you had any concerns about money in politics, as we're doing this show, I just got an alert um, on Facebook from Libby Coker, who's the member for Karangamite, who's Labor member, yeah. announcing that the government of Scott Morrison has just blocked an investigation into Christian Porter's secret million-dollar donation. Uh, of course. Of so course. Christian Porter, the Attorney General, who's facing former various... Former Attorney General. Former sorry, attorney. former. He is former yeah. Attorney General, um, who has faced various allegations, uh, who um, pursued a defamation action against the ABC and yet settled that yeah. action, uh, very interestingly. Um it uh, it emerged it, he had a million emerged, dollar donation, right? An anonymous one. An anonymous one. Someone with a million dollars slapped it on a cabinet minister who was facing pretty serious um, allegations. Yeah, just dropped it. Just dropped a blind blind million. God, to, I wonder what I wonder what that to, was for him about. To run a private court case, like it. Yeah, it and the, the government has blocked an investigation into that. The government because, doesn't think we need to know just why somebody was giving, giving, just giving. Yeah. It's not tax deductible. That's oh. not a tax deductible donation. Oh. Like slapping a million bucks on Christian Porter. On the former Attorney General who, you know, it's no secret until until his career has circled the drain as it has in recent months, was tipped to be one of the contenders to take over from Morrison. You know, it was it was widely discussed last year in Canberra circles whether Porter or Frydenberg would end up as the successor to Morrison, and certainly Porter was putting money on himself. And it seems like some anonymous donor was literally putting money on it becoming Porter as well. How can there not be an investigation into this? Sam Dastiari, his entire political career came to an end over a $1,200 airfare or something. This is a million dollars, for heaven's sake. An anonymous million dollars. Just, oh, here you go, former Attorney General. Go and sue whoever you like. There you go. Don't worry about who I am. Just, just, I'm just wearing, just wearing my eyes wide shut mask and my my hilded cloak. Like, imagine if somebody turned up at a at a parliamentarian's office in a in, <laughs> you know in a full mask and handed over a bag of cash. It's effectively what they've done, isn't it? I just, I can't even. I'm just. How would you not investigate that? Yeah, it really (laughs) should be investigated. Because the cost of not investigating it is declining trust. 
And declining trust means a lack of faith in democracy. And it's when people lose faith in democracy that our friends, the boneheads, the pro-authoritarians, the lumpen bourgeoisie out on the street, that's when they start going, you know, fascism is really effective. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Like there are long consequential problems of this kind of behaviour, which is why we developed the institutions of transparency and accountability in the first place. And once upon a time in that strange blurry netherworld where conservatives actually had values, they used to love institutions. Conservatives used to absolute jolly off into the sunset over the notion of an establishment They were really into concepts like the rule of law and due process and they used to get up the left for the fact that because we participated in strike action and protests and sit-ins and marches that we were this sort of, you know, anti-democratic rabble who wouldn't accept the law. They didn't accept the argument that we were trying to develop a legal system that was fair and represented everybody. They were like, no, 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 these institutions are infallible, we must have them. And they used to get really, really antsy about those things. And now we live in this totally bizarre universe where I'm like, what a bit about what about a bit of dem- democratic accountability? Like I'm in, I'm for like the 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 great progressive alliance that formed to fight fascism in World War Two and and informed the, the you know the improvement accommodation the diversification the empowerment within our institutions this is this is democracy guys let's defend it yeah nah nah bit less accountability <laughs> yeah, more than right. a thousand days since they promised a national integrity commission they and they, they haven't done it you know they don't want to bring they don't want to bring together a democratic coalition to tackle climate change. They don't want a democratic coalition to defend democracy. You just get this sneaking suspicion, uh, you know, that they just don't really like democracy. They're a bit, I think they might be a bit worried that us weasels uh, might uh, might take over and our self-interest is so – it's just – it's so incredible that, 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 that they, their side of politics can accuse – us of being self-interested, lacking in trust and lacking and, discipline. Yeah, lacking discipline. It's like, <laughs> yeah, put Bridget McKenzie in front of a pot of free money and tell me about discipline, love. Look, Ben. Right, yeah, like, shall, we compare, shall we compare Angus Taylor to a summer's day or a weasel? <laughs> you decide. Well, Van, I think we have to end on some good news because, you know, I think we where we are politically in this country is in desperate need of an election and in desperate need of a new government. I think every working person listening to this, if you haven't joined your union already, please do yourself, do all of us a favour. Join your union, and I don't, I don't really care what union it is, but if you go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. Like join a real union, don't join a Liberal Party front union. There are sadly a few of those in this country. But the real unions are all on the Australian Union's website. They're the ones that you join. They're the proper, legal, fair, transparent, democratic organisations that fight for working people every day. So, So use the link. AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow. That will that will help you find your union. Join and and join the fight for more secure jobs, for more accountability in our democracy, for, for better wages. And and I just want to end Van today on the good news. Normally I know we I know we normally do a good news story on the environment. I think today 
I'm, I just want to say I think the good news today is that we're finally getting to a point where people are able to move around. We discussed this earlier, but it does seem very likely that in the coming days, maybe weeks now, not no longer months, you'll be able to come home for a while. I'll be able to go up to Sydney at some point soon. We'll be able to see each other. And many, like many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Australian families we will be able to be reunited, and I think, I think that's probably the best news of the day for many, many people. Not just not just for us, but for the many tens of thousands of Australians who will be able to see their family members again after what has been, frankly, a very long and cold winter, particularly in the eastern states of Australia. I just miss you so much. I miss you, you too. Know, you know, I do, and you know, I think we've gone through every emotion on this podcasts like we've gone through hopeful and we've gone through despairing and we've gone through crying on the floor wishing it would all end to be fair that was mostly me um and it's sort of frightening like it's actually frightening to go wow we might actually see one another like I'm terrified of getting my hopes up but it just feels like good news and can I just say as half of a couple who are obviously very close very entwined in one another's lives and from a family that is incredibly entwined and supported. Thank you to everybody who got vaccinated. Yeah. Thank you to everybody who is scared of needles and went, you know, I'm just going to toughen up and do it. Like I know that that's been a real issue for people. That's a genuine fear and I get it. And people did it anyway. And thank you to everybody who was like, this is a logistical nightmare for whatever reason, but I'm going to persevere. I'm going to stay on the phone. I'm going to make the booking. I'm going to do it. Thank you to everyone who helped people get vaccinated, helped other people, made phone calls, took them to appointments and the rest of it. Like, we're going to be back together. Like, it's going to happen. Our family will be reunited. I'll get to see the dog. That will be a treat. You know, and it's literally because of the people who went, you know, I'm in this for things that are bigger than myself and I might be able to, you know, minimise my risk or whatever, but I'm getting vaccinated because that's important. And thank you to all those people. Thank you to all of you. And congratulations to every Australian who has gotten vaccinated or is going to get vaccinated because, you know, we're going to end up with one of the most vaccinated populations in the world in this country, and that is an incredible achievement. And we have to keep the pressure on because we know we've seen how slow the Morrison government can be off the mark with these things. Uh, but, you know, we're doing it. So congratulations to everybody. Thank you to everybody. Fanny, I think that's the end of the show for this week. Big thanks to everyone for liking, sharing. Don't forget to comment, if you, particularly if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. If you comment on there, it really helps other people find us and get to hear what we're talking about. Thank you to everyone for discussing these issues. I'm, I've fallen behind on the emails. Please bear with me. We will get to them. It's really great. We really appreciate it. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.